0: And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about a victory in the struggle for abortion rights and reproductive justice in Kansas, of all places. Also going to be talking about protests that have been happening inside Iraq and going to be discussing the campaign to free political prisoner, Dr. Matulu Shakur. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. Before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind.
1: Well, in court proceedings yesterday, Mark Bankston, the attorney of one of the Sandy Hook victim's parents, said to Alex Jones during cross-examination, Mr. Jones, did you know that 12 days ago your attorneys messed up and sent me an entire digital copy of your entire cell phone with every text message you've sent for the past two years? Well, apparently Jones didn't know because he looked like a cartoon character who just realized the bomb he threw had landed back in his lap not able to defend why he basically grew his libelous platform InfoWars on the claims that Sandy Hook wasn't real, that it was a false flag, that those children who were murdered weren't real, and that six-year-old Jesse Lewis in particular was made up and that his mother was a crisis actor. Alex InfoWars pumped up on something Chemical Jones had to admit in court that the Sandy Hook massacre was indeed 100% real, those children were 100% Dead, those parents were 100% grieving, and he was 100% lying. And he really couldn't get out of the last part admitting that he was lying because those text messages that his attorney somehow accidentally sent. Come on, y'all. Who accidentally sends two years worth of text messages? Nobody. That's who. Those text messages proved that Jones was lying when he said under oath that he had never sent any text messages about the Sandy Hook case. Jones had already lost four defamation cases last year that were filed against him by the families of 10 victims of the shooting. He lost those cases by default after failing to produce documents and testimony ordered by courts in Texas and Connecticut. That set in motion three trials for damages. The one in Austin that's going on this week is the first Jones's financial records were also presented that contradicted his claim, also under oath, that he is bankrupt. And this trial is just the first of three that will determine how much Jones will pay to the families he maligned on his show, which caused the families to be harassed by Jones followers. And Jones is also under scrutiny for his role in planning events around the attacks on the Capitol on January 6th. So those very same text messages could be of interest to the House January 6th committee. All of that arrogance and hubris and Western chauvinism that he bellowed on his show, well, none of that was present in court. As Jones sweated so much on the stand that he could barely keep it from running into his eyes and down his thick neck. I think we know who has lost the info wars thanks to Alex Jones's own crafty attorneys. Shout out to them. Amnesty International issued a report this week that documents that the Ukrainian army has been using civilian targets and endangering civilians. Now, I know we've been saying this on this show since this Ukrainian war has been going on, but I guess some people really need to hear these facts from an empire adjacent source to believe it. The amnesty report shows that the Ukrainian army has repeatedly set up de facto military bases in residential locations. They use 22 of 29 schools as military operations staging areas in towns and villages in Donbass and in the Myokaliev area and frequently uses residential areas and private homes to launch attacks against Russia. But even as the report finally exposes the violations of international law that Ukraine is committing, that we've been telling you they've been doing all along, Amnesty just couldn't help themselves in taking up space to condemn Russia and their response as indiscriminate. But Amnesty has exposed the truth about the war in Ukraine and the crimes committed by the Ukrainian army. And that is that Ukraine is using every single Ukrainian civilian man, woman and child and even the sick as shields for their army to continue to fight this evil proxy war on behalf of the US, EU and NATO against Russia. And they do this to continue the anti-Russia propaganda surrounding it. But no demonization of Russia's response, which, let's be honest here, has been extraordinarily measured, will erase those facts. (music) An interesting thing happened in a so-called red state this week that should cause us to stop looking at states as full of people who are beyond the reach of organizing. Republican so-called pro-life lawmakers in Kansas asked voters to change the state constitution which protects the right to an abortion and give them permission to pass new laws restricting or banning abortion. The voters in Kansas, a so-called red state, surprisingly said no. Actually, they said hell no, as more than 58 percent of Kansas primary voters voted to protect abortion rights in the state. Despite the typical Republican dirty tricks, voter suppression, misleading and confusing information campaigns, etc., more than 900,000 people took part in the primary, which was almost as many people who voted in the recent presidential elections. 1.2 million people voted in Kansas. In the twenty sixteen presidential election, and one point three million voted in twenty twenty. So how did so many people come out to vote for a primary outside of a midterm or presidential election and shock the Red State establishment to assure that voting rights for women were upheld in Kansas? Well, first of all, This couldn't have happened if Republicans didn't vote in favor of abortion rights, and more Republicans actually did vote in Kansas in this primary than Democrats. Then, I think this is a very important lesson for us organizers. Stop looking at people in the states as representatives of the political party that runs the state. Kansas should have voted to deny women in the state constitutional protection to abortion because the legislature in Kansas is Republican. But the people in the state literally thought differently and reflected that at the polls. We organizers have to stop looking at organizing at the state level as something we do in red or blue states. We need to approach organizing as engagement with all the people on the ground on issues that matter. Anything less than that, and we're leaving a whole bunch of people behind for the ruling class two-party system to exploit for votes, then ignore and leave behind until the next election. We can do better than that. The people can lead the way, and Kansas has proven that. Follow Luke Mann Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke Nation for lots of great content.
0: And those are today's talking points, and you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukman, and as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us.
2: By Any Means Necessary.
0: And we're going to keep the movement moving on. As they say, we're now happy to be joined by Hannah Dickinson, professor and organizer with Geneva Women's Assembly in Geneva, New York, and the managing editor of Breaking the Chains magazine. Hannah, thanks so much for joining us.
3: So happy to be here.
0: Absolutely. And Hannah, uh, as the struggle for abortion rights and women's liberation in the United States continues following the overturning of Roe v. Wade, uh, there's actually been a victory in Kansas, of all places, as we saw Kansas voters that turned out uh, to defend abortion rights. And not only did they defend these rights, uh, they did so in a pretty emphatic way in terms of how they showed up. And so help us understand uh, just what this Vote looked like? What was the content of it? And how did it unfold from there?
3: Sure. I, you're absolutely right. I mean, this is a decisive victory for the abortion rights movement and for democratic rights in the U.S. more broadly. So just a little background. In Kansas in 2019, the Supreme Court basically said the Kansas Constitution protected abortion. And so the far right in Kansas trying to ban abortion was put in a position where they had to bring this to a referendum if they were going to be able to put in place the really, really reactionary uh, anti-choice laws um, that they were hoping to put into place. Um, So uh, this means that um, on Tuesday, abortion was on the ballot in Kansas. And I think it's really important to say from the outset, on the ballot in Kansas in a really, really misleading and shady way. So um, this was a a primary election. Uh, Republicans were predicting a very low voter turnout in general, and particularly a low um, voter turnout from Democrats. The language of the a uh, referendum was extremely misleading um, and unscientific. Along with the name of it, value them both. And despite um, all of the dirty tricks, um, and we can get into some of the really bad ones, pulled by Republicans and the far right in Kansas, uh, decisively in what looks like at least 59 percent to 41 percent, Kansas Went to the polls in enormous numbers to say, no, we don't want the government telling us what we can do with our bodies and we stand up for abortion rights.
1: Yeah, I definitely would love to get into some of the dirty tricks because, you know, the voter turnout, early in-person voter turnout was 250 percent higher than the 2018 primary midterm election. And mail-in ballots doubled. 76 percent of votes reported over 60 percent of Kansas voters said no to the measure to remove abortion protections in the state constitution. How was a victory this decisive? carried out in a state where the GOP, and as you said, the far right, really did some really despicable things that I, I think were, I mean, they I think they even outdid themselves with some of these things, Hannah.
3: Yeah, let's start with some of the dirty tricks. I mean, the one of the ones that I, I found just galling was that on the morning of the election, um the organization um, pushing to end abortion in Kansas, really um, with significant money from the um, archdiocese in Kansas, the Catholic Church there, um, they sent out text messages uh, to huge numbers of people in Kansas that uh, said on, you know, this morning. Uh, women in Kansas are losing their choice on reproductive rights vote yes on the amendment um, to give women a choice vote yes to protect women's health so that is a text that sounds like if you are for abortion rights you should be voting yes when in fact the convoluted <laughs> referendum means a no vote was how you had to vote if you wanted to stand up for abortion rights I mean so that one I find really galling I also think you know it's just important we've talked um, and you talk a lot on this show about voting rights and um, and I voting rights in Kansas um, are restrictive. You have to show up with a voter ID. You um, have to register to vote at least three weeks before the election. Um, And if you're not registered with a political party, you can't vote for a candidate in that election. So that means there were unaffiliated voters who showed up to vote in Kansas who couldn't vote for um, this Republican candidate or that Democratic candidate, and they still showed up to say, we want abortion to stay legal in Kansas. So I I think to your second question, how did this happen? It happened for, I think, two deeply related reasons. One, people got organized in Kansas. I mean, the organizers there, they knocked on hundreds of thousands of doors. They talked to tens of thousands of people in their phone banking. Um, And, you know, the managed to register people to vote, particularly after the um, Supreme Court overruled Dobbs in enormous numbers. I mean, 70 percent of the people who registered to vote um, after Dobbs was over or sorry, after Roe was overturned um, in Kansas uh, were women. And I, I think that tells us a whole bunch about the power of people and the power of people getting organized, um, which is related to the second reason I think this is such a massive win is that abortion's popular. 60% of Kansas Kansans support the right to an abortion. The U.S. numbers are about there, maybe as high as 70 percent. So, you know, what we've been looking at in this struggle around abortion for decades, but really intensively in the last six weeks or so, is this far-right, minoritarian Supreme Court acting like dictators over the lives and bodies of the people of this country. And the majority don't agree. And and this was a real chance. This ballot referendum was a real chance for people to go to the polls and not just vote for someone they hoped would uphold their rights, actually say, what I believe in, what I think is important, what I think is necessary is for um, there to be a legal right to abortion in this country, and I'm going to show up and vote for it.
0: Yeah, definitely. And like just within the context of the overall struggle for uh, abortion rights and reproductive justice that we've seen unfold. I mean, we saw the streets fill with people all across the country following the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And uh, the fact that we see this in Kansas, Hannah, I think says a couple of things. I mean, number one, it shows that there absolutely is still an appetite to fight for this issue. And also it shows that you know even in a dark moment like the overturning of roe v wade is absolutely a dark moment that uh, continues to have ripple effects but i think this shows that you know we can't we can't concede defeat before we even begin to fight and so i i hope that people will see this and understand that you know the the the, the issue of abortion rights in the united states it's not over it's not something that's going away but i think we'll only continue to see this kind of progress like we saw in Canada. Kansas, if we continue to organize and continue to
3: fight. I think that's exactly right. And I think part of building that fight, part of building those organizations, um, right, is about recognizing that the sort of uh, mainstream common sense from liberal media establishments, from uh, Democratic party leaders is wrong. I mean, and it's been wrong for decades. People are not afraid to say the word abortion. One in four women in the United States has had an abortion. That means that, right, all of us um, have either had or know somebody who has had an abortion. This it, It is a, right, basic, medical procedure um, that is necessary, right, in some cases and and needed in cases where um, people elect to have those abortions. And so, you know, I, I was thinking about that book, What's the Matter with Kansas, right, that argues that the Democratic Party lost working class Kansans because of social issues like abortion or like gay rights. And we've seen Democratic strategists use this as a reason to downplay women's LGBTQ rights um, and and other um, crucial democratic rights um, in their elections. And and they were wrong, right? And I think necessary and important that those of us out in the streets, um, organizing for abortion rights, organizing for women's rights, organizing for LGBTQ rights, and all of the democratic rights that are under attack right now, that we don't listen to the conventional wisdom. We don't listen to the, you know, rich ruling class pundits telling us what is and isn't popular with people. We know what's popular. We know that people believe in a women's right to choose. We know that people believe that we should get to control our own bodies. And we know that people are disgusted with Billionaires um, in tiny, tiny numbers getting to make decisions for the rest of us. So um, I think, right, this false picture of uh, red states and what people in red states believe and how backward they are is wrong. Kansas, Kansans got organized and they had a huge victory that will matter, right? Not just for people in Kansas, but as you've said, Sean, shines a just bright light and shows us what is possible locality by locality, state by state, county by county, which I will say appears to be how this struggle is being um, waged right now, right? Um, even if right we're not seeing massive national demos, what we are seeing is organizers um, pulling people together, many of whom have never, ever been involved in any political work before, any organizing work before, saying this is it, right? This is the fight for my life. This is the fight for the conditions of my life and my neighbors. And I'm not staying on the sidelines anymore. And I I think it's, it's really powerful to see.
0: Absolutely. And Hannah, you went exactly where I wanted to go in talking about the Democrats and how they just write off entire parts of the country and and basically think that by, uh, you know, kowtowing to uh, uh, these right wing views and narratives that that's somehow going to benefit something, you know, at best or, you know, uh, whatever it is they think it will do. I mean, just in April of this year, I thought about this. We saw Democrats in Maryland withdraw the Trans Health Equity Act. That's their own bill. And this bill easily passed uh, the Senate, and just as it was uh, about to, uh, you know, head into the the House of Delegates, or just as that session was ending, it just kind of disappeared. Now, the Democrats outnumber Republicans two to one in both chambers in Maryland. So why did the Democrats do this when they didn't have to for this same thing? They wanted to appeal to right-wing voters in, quote-unquote, purple Uh, Counties in the states And so not only does that not work Not only uh, will right wing voters Not vote for Democrats The Democrats in doing so also Effectively throw the rights of trans People, women and LGBTQ folks Under the bus and so I just Think it shows that we can't trust the Democrats We can't trust any of these Ruling class uh, uh, parties Certainly not the Republicans either And that ultimately the struggle For abortion rights and for all These other uh, uh, basic rights that are literally life and death issues for millions of people in this country, that effort is going to have to come from outside those ruling class institutions and emerge from out of a struggle from the people.
3: I think that's exactly right. I mean, if you followed any of the um, sort of again, like liberal, um, mainstream, elite discourse about what happened in Kansas, um, you know, they've made some of the points we've talked about. But overall, their point is, if Democrats are going to win at the midterms, they've got to hitch their ride to abortion rights. And the opportunism of that is just galling, right? The Half of the population, if not more, has lost a fundamental right in the last six weeks. And rather than Democrats going out and saying, we will do everything we can to stand up for you, to get the rights of Roe back and more, what they're saying is oh, it's just, it's, you know, it's too bad you lost your rights, but at least now we'll get people out to the polls in the midterms. And A, I think that's a false analysis of what's happening here, right? People were mobilized in Kansas um, because they, they could see, right, that they truly had a stake in this fight, right? True representational democracy or true direct democracy, right? They could see my vote will lead to, A, me being able to preserve a right. And B, I think this is important for Kansas voters, too. They understand that they're in the middle of an abortion desert there in the plains. People following, you know, after Roe fell, the abortion clinics um, in Kansas, they saw an increase of at least double many, many of those patients from Texas, Missouri, Arkansas. And so, right, this was a solidarity vote, too. This was saying, no, Kansas is going to be on the right side, and we're going to have each other's backs. And so, right, rather than celebrating any of that, the Democrats take this as an opportunity to opportunity to say, you know, nag, right? Like, well, if you came out for this in Kansas, you better come out for us in the midterms. That's how we're going to win, treating women's rights, treating Um, bodily autonomy, just like it's a political bargaining chip, when that's not what we're hearing in the streets. That's not what we're hearing from organizers. That's not what we're hearing from everyday people. What those folks are saying is, get rid of the Hyde Amendment. We need to make sure that abortion access is free and available to the most oppressed among us. And we need true reproductive justice that also looks beyond abortion rights to think about how it is that we ensure that people can have the families they want and build them in sustainable communities with childcare, with food, with access to housing. That's where the struggle is. And and Democrats are dead wrong if they think um, they can win um, on the coattails of fighters like those in Kansas.
0: Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Hannah, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us.
2: By Any Means Necessary.
0: And today we're talking about ongoing protests inside Iraq. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Hassan Ahmadiyan, Assistant Professor in the West Asia and North Africa Studies Department at the University of Tehran. Professor, thanks so much for joining us.
4: Thank you. It's good to be with you, Sean.
0: Absolutely. And Professor Ahmadiyan. Uh, supporters of Iraqi scholar Muqtada al Sadr um, continue to occupy and sit in the national parliament in Baghdad, uh, I think for a number of reasons uh, and around uh, uh, several demands, including uh, early elections, uh, the dissolution of parliament, and I believe also one of the, the core issues is uh, protesters opposing the nomination of Mohammed Shia al Sudani. As the new prime minister of Iraq and really before we even get to the protests themselves and how they've been unfolding, I was hoping you could help us understand some of the background and context for what led up to this. So if you could sort of break down who is Muqtada al-Sadr and what were the conditions inside Iraq that led to this demonstration?
4: Yes, uh, so Muqtada Sadr is uh, one of the most controversial figures, political figures in Iraq. I mean, United States uh, people in America might have heard his name uh, after the 2003 uh, occupation of Iraq and his Jaish al-Mahdi. Uh, operations against uh, U.S. uh, troops in Iraq. And then his flip-flopping in Iraqi politics, rising to gain more uh, support. Uh, Basically, he has uh, a a grassroots, uh, very limited, but very strong support within the Iraqi uh, society. He has been, uh, uh, you know, rising uh, in the Iraqi uh, politics Uh, after the uh, 2003 uh, occupation, as I said. Now, if we're talking about the current uh, stalemate in the Iraqi uh, politics, uh, I think it started in October uh, 2021, when an early election happened, and Muqtada Sadr's party uh, uh, won the majority. Uh, so, though it wasn't a decisive majority, it was 22 percent of the seats, 74 seats in the Iraqi parliament, but uh, it was the biggest block in the parliament. Uh, nevertheless, Muqtada Sadr could not form the uh, new government uh, for obvious reason. He couldn't, uh, uh, you know, get the two-thirds of the uh, votes uh, necessary for uh, electing a president and then prime minister. Uh, That's why we've entered the longest uh, stalemate in Iraqi uh, uh, elections, uh, -elections, post-elections, political uh, uh, basically debates uh, aiming at electing a prime minister. Uh, Therefore, frustrated with the You know, uh, the process, Muqtada Sadr, almost a month ago, uh, called on his MPs, his party's MPs, to resign. And they did. Seventy-four MPs resigned, and uh, their seats were occupied by, uh, uh, basically uh, replaced by uh, Muqtada's rivals in the Iraqi Shia parties, mainly. So they could have formed the government. Had, uh, if, if the uh, current situation did not unfold. They basically moved to that direction. Uh, they had the two-third majority. They brought up the uh, uh, candidate, uh, Muhammad Shia Sudani, turned out to be very controversial. Uh, basically, Sadr uh, opposed uh, his election and uh, his uh, basically uh, support based from their parliament and we are where we are because of that so they are they have resigned but they were eyeing a role in the Iraqi politics despite not being present in the parliament and the politics moving away from the uh, Sadr party with with an election uh, of a premier that who who was seen as uh not aligned or uh, not in line with what Sadr wanted led to him calling for uh, protests, and uh, and, then the Iraqi parliament was stormed.
1: Yeah, Professor. And, you know, I'm wondering about uh, the schism in between uh, the different uh, factions, the uh, people who support al-Sadr and his so-called rivals, because he, he seems to have a popular base among working-class Shia Iraqis. Um, but then in his speech, he said that, you know, uh, he has no interest in negotiating with his rivals. But then he said, don't believe the rumors that I don't want dialogue. But we have already tried and experienced dialogue with them. It has brought nothing to us and to the nation, only ruin and corruption. So if his support is mainly among working class Shia Iraqis, who are the people who are uh, the folks, his rivals, that he doesn't want dialogue with? And what does that mean for the class character of of the struggle in Iraq right now?
4: Which uh, that's part of the reason why his uh, rivals are uh, uh, criticizing him. He's he's not clear as to what he basically wants uh, in his dialogue with uh, his opponents. He, but he is criticized and blamed for trying to monopolize Iraqi uh, politics, you know, as opposed to creating a consensus or bringing up a consensus between Shiite blocs within the Iraqi politics to try to uh, elect a prime minister. He has gone beyond that, s- tried to sideline his Shiite rivals, and then uh, he couldn't do that basically because he couldn't get the two-thirds majority, uh, so, so he went to re- resignation and then uh, demonstrations. Now, his rivals within the Shiite uh, factions are basically the, the, the coalition that is called the framework, the framework coalition, basically. This framework is, has many figures, big names in Iraqi politics, including former prime minister Nuril maliki and others. Basically, if you, if you look at the uh, Shiite politics now in Iraq, you see two basically very clear uh, factions. One is Sadr and the other is what is not Sadr in the uh, Shi'at community and politics. That includes almost all former prime ministers and uh, all the parties that are opposing uh, uh, Sadr's, basically, uh, uh, views and uh, politics. So he, uh, in one way or another, put himself uh, in, a, uh, uh in a, in an opposing uh, uh, place to all Shia factions that were not satisfied with with his way of dealing with the with with uh, the elections and the aftermath of the elections he has been uh, uh trying to say to basically blame them and they have bl- they have been blaming him now with regards to his uh, su- Support base within the Iraqi Shiite community, uh, we know that he has a very strong, uh, you know, uh, working class supporting him, very strong base in that. But even uh, if we look at the numbers, we see that even his, uh, uh, you know, uh, support base have been dwindling. He got 1.5, almost 1.5 million votes back in 2020, but only 800,000 votes in 2021. So, and and the same goes to other Shiite factions. So the Shiite populations and the Iraqi, basically, uh, population is fed up with the current, uh, you know, way of uh, uh, dealing with their uh, basic, needs and demands, uh, which are basically and primarily focused on economics and the uh, uh, daily life uh, uh, that they are facing and struggling with. Uh, so within this, you can see that there is frustration, there is uh, uh, demand for change and many call for a change the, the, an a, a, a overhaul of the entire political system, which is very problematic because everything is not functional, but touching any parcel of this structure would lead to more complication because there will be parties that oppose this change and parties will, will go for this change, and this is Really, uh, very problematic. It has been tried uh, in an incremental way, but it didn't succeed uh, in the in the past. So over time, you see the frustration with this way of the uh, you know uh, that, that the, Sadr, the Sadr and his rivals are dealing with the Iraqi politics are uh, uh, creating in the Iraqi society and in their own support base in the Iraqi society.
0: Yeah, and Professor Ahmadian, I'm also curious what um, response we've seen so far uh, from the Iraqi government. I mean, have we uh, heard anything from Prime Minister Mustafa al Um Has there been attempts to remove the protesters? Uh, what's happening on that front?
4: Yeah, so the, uh, Mustafa al-Kademi spoke about uh, uh, the latest speech by Muqtada Sadr who spoke on uh, the necessity for a an early elections, an early parliamentary elections, that seemed to have gained momentum. Many Iraqi figures have spoke about the necessity and supported uh, Sadr's call. Uh, of course, the framework, the main Shia bloc opposing Sadr were not satisfied with it, but they see their limits in opposing this call because uh, the political turmoil and uh, 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 stalemate that has been there for nine months can uh, be prolonged uh, without a, uh, early elections. So all in all, the Iraqi interim prime minister is supporting an early elections, and I think Iraq is headed that way uh, uh, without a compromise between Sadr and his rivals. I think there is no other way out. But the problem remains because the fundamentals of the crisis are there ever since the Iraqis voted for the constitution back in 2005. Uh, the main problems within the Iraqi political structure have been there. There have been many, uh, uh, m- much criticism against it, the many uh, attempts to incrementally uh, change the uh, problems within the system, but all have failed. Uh, And for obvious reasons, uh, I mean, there are many, many oppose what uh, others uh, would uh, suggest. Uh, uh, I mean, within Iraq, there's this uh, problem of, uh, uh, you know, the many voices and many figures uh, who oppose one another in almost everything. So that's uh, the situation.
1: Yeah. And Professor Akhmadian, I I have to ask, and I'm sure our listeners are wondering how much of this chaos and paralysis uh, in the uh, Iraqi political system is a result of the system that the U.S. helped to create and this pretty much abandoned the country with when uh, they left, or at least they said they left physically.
4: Of course, the system have been has been enacted by the United States. It was the occupying power, in Iraq uh, and replaced the former regime with the new uh, regime uh, very uh, uh, you know controversial uh, in many ways. This happened, but it happened anyway and the United States was the party responsible for uh, uh, you know creating it. Now, many regional actors, most importantly, Iran, uh, supported this. Uh, But over time, the United States, uh, uh, you know, tried to uh, uh, jump over the problems that came out of this system. And over time, it dragged its, uh, you know, uh, feet out of the responsibility that was there and uh, it was blamed for. Now, the structure was built based on uh, sectarian divides within the Iraqi uh, society. Um, Basically, the president was to be a Kurdish Iraqi, uh, uh, the Speaker of the House uh, uh, has been, and uh, based on that, system should be a Sunni Iraqi, and then the prime minister should be a Shi'a Iraqi. So this sectarianism, structural sectarianism within the system was enacted by the United States, uh, and for obvious reason, many, uh, uh, you know, to to, to basically to uh, uh, control uh, uh, the overwhelming majority of the Shi'at's power within Iraq. Uh, this sectarian division was uh, basically institutionalized uh, to have the Sunnis and the Kurds uh, uh, also present and uh, uh, balance the Shia power within Iraq. And also, of course, for, for obvious reasons, the Kurds have been uh, uh, one of uh, U.S.'s main allies in, in, the, in Iraq dating back from the 90s uh, and they supported its occupation of Iraq and then the Sunnis became a minority and you know minorities tend to uh, get a patron in uh, their rivalry or you know uh, 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 opposition to the majority that uh, is in the Iraqi case has been a a religious majority Uh, so all in all, this system was enacted in a way that had fundamental issues related to sect, religion, and uh, uh, political struggle and power struggle. Uh, and the United States withdrawn from Iraq have, has, has created a vacuum to be filled in 2014 by ISIS. And then, after ISIS was defeated. To be uh, uh, to lead the country into a more chaotic politics uh, that we see in in current uh, uh, you know in the in the current situation in Iraq. Uh, this is not new. Iraq has seen many uh, prolonged uh, uh, stalemates, but this is the longest tailmate in Iraqi politics. And this tells us that Iraqi politics are moving uh, towards a more uh, you know, uh, chaotic, uh, hectic, less predictable uh, uh, times. And I think, um, of course, the United States uh, bears a, a responsibility, but it seems that it is not uh, that much willing to uh, uh, get involved in uh, trying to resolve the, the crisis there in Iraq.
0: Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Professor, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there but move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us.
2: By Any Means Necessary.
0: And today in a very special Black August segment, we're talking about the campaign to free political prisoner, Dr. Matulu Shakur. And we are very happy to be joined for this conversation today by Jomo Mohammed, an organizer with the Malcolm X grassroots movement. Jomo, thanks so much for joining us. All right. Free land and Black August resistance to everyone. Absolutely, absolutely. And Joe Mo, uh, of course, uh, the campaign to free Dr. Matulu Shakur has been going on for some time as he has been locked up for quite some time. And uh, the effort to release him now has taken on a new urgency, given some uh, persistent and serious health issues that Dr. Shakur is experiencing. And so just to begin, if you could tell us a little bit about just who is Dr. Matulu Shakur and uh, uh, what is his status at this point?
5: Absolutely. So uh, for many folks, probably the best way to connect uh, Dr. Shakur is that he is uh, Tupac's father. is not a biological father, but uh, he is seen uh, as as such. Um, and, uh, and to so many others, uh, he is a healer, a human rights uh, activist, uh, an organizer, part of... Uh, the New African Independence Movement. He's a father, grandfather, um, brother, um, and friend to so many. Uh, and his most famous work um, was the work that he was doing uh, in the 60s and 70s with Lincoln Detox in New York, in the Bronx, New York, a part of the kind of this work of revolutionary health workers, who uh, were helping to bring acupuncture to our communities to fight the, at that time was what we now know as the the war on drugs and Matulu and so many others stood in the wake of that, trying to beat back that scourge um, as well as he's, uh, was part of the set of folks that also investigated and revealed uh, the COINTELPRO program, the U.S. government's illegal program uh, to destroy uh, black liberation movements, uh, to which we say and argue Matulu continues to be a victim of.
1: Yeah, he definitely does. And uh, ever since he was uh, uh, diagnosed with cancer in 2019, uh, he and his uh, supporters have applied for compassionate release. So what have been the efforts since then to uh, obtain the compassionate release for Matulu Shakur, leading right up to uh, efforts that are going on to this very day?
5: Absolutely. I think it's really important to, to like you said, like Matulu has been, um, has life threatening cancer. Um, the Bureau of Prisons' own doctors have given him less than six months to live, uh, in the, Kind of in this COVID period, a pandemic, he's had COVID at least three times, uh, and uh, not to be, only to be paled by the number of times he's been denied parole, which he is due for. He's served over; uh, he was since, supposed to serve thirty years. He's now served thirty six, uh, and he's continued to be denied. Uh, compassionate release, um, or mandatory parole, uh, which has been some of the arguments that we've been making—that he served his time, that he should be free off uh, off uh, parole, or he should be released under compassionate release because of his deteriorating condition. Uh, we've been denied um, several, at several ways, the the judge, Judge Hite. Uh, who was his original judge who convicted him uh, den- uh denied his compassionate release uh most recently um saying he wasn't sick enough as well as uh, appeals to the US parole uh commission that most recently denied his commission uh Saying, citing that they believe that this 71-year-old man with life-threatening cancer who's had COVID three times, who, uh, according to officials in the Bureau of Prisons, is less than 125 pounds, um, in and out of kind of consciousness, uh, is gonna commit a crime if he's released and so uh that's some of what we have been fighting against we've been calling on anybody and everybody there's a lot of folks who could with a decision free to tomorrow starting with the judge up to the u.s parole commission to uh president biden uh giving uh uh parole you know giving him compassionate release and so there are many ways that he could be free um and we've been trying to organize him and and, and put pressure on these officials to do right by Matulu, and that is to free him now.
0: Yeah. And, you know, uh, Jomo, when we look at the state of Dr. Shakur at this point and also the state of a lot of political prisoners who are still behind the wall, still behind enemy lines after decades and decades and decades. I mean, it, it just shows that uh, I mean, with all the abuse and, and uh, uh, brutal mistreatment that so many of them face, it's just clear that the reason why the state continues to attack these people is because they committed what is an unforgive. Sin in this white supremacist capitalist country. As Africans, they dare to resist. This uh, country and this state and this society um, that uh, literally made property out of our ancestors and in the time since continues to exploit and oppress us in the most uh, brutal of ways. And so I just think it uh, evidences a lot about uh, uh, not only the nature of uh, the United States of America, but how important it is to continue the struggle because the folks that are still imprisoned never stop struggling. I mean, not only are they dealing with um, sort of their own issues from being in prison, but there's still a lot of them teaching and, you know, giving commentary and making contributions to the movement as best they can. And so I just feel like uh, political prisoners like Dr. Matulu Shakur and others to me can really serve as a a kind of shining example and a model of the kind of resolve and tenacity that we're going to have to have if we're going to fight this system.
5: Absolutely. I, I agree. I think one of the most, you know, it's kind of kind of how Doc talks about when he uses this phrase called straight ahead, which is, again, one of the, the use of things that they try to justify <laughs> uh, his denying parole that he uses this phrase straight ahead. And it's just like you're saying towards those things, it's towards resilience, towards healing. And, and absolutely, I think, um, yeah, Doc and other political prisoners are, you know, a ref, you know, a reflection of that. And also part of, uh, you know, the larger system, the failed system of uh, mass incarceration that many of us in your audience probably knows comes as a result, as a backlash to those black liberation movements. Um, you know, the, news, you know, maybe two years ago, the report came out from the, the guy from the Nixon administration finally admitted that the whole war on drugs was used to try to criminalize a whole community that wanted to be free. And Doc was a part of that community um, and continues to languish. And then there are like there are other prisoners, 200 prisoners that include other political prisoners like Leonard Peltier, Billy Dunn, who also continue to be held under this old law federal sentencing um, that have no chance. Of parole. So, Doc is one of many, and he's particularly targeted because of his political activities, because he is alleged to have freed Asada Shakur, who is still free in Cuba today. He is um, still locked up because uh, he is accused of. Uh, Lifting, appropriating money from capitalist banks that robbed and redlined our communities, using that money, not for his own personal gain, not for the gain of his family, but to support camps for black children in Mississippi, and using that money, sending that money back to Africa to support liberation movements in Zimbabwe. So these are the reasons, um, some of the the reasons why we, we think that he continues to be incarcerated in the America, like you said, has never forgotten that. That's a history of slavery, right? To hang and uh, the rebellious slaves to put their head on a post to be a lesson for all of us. But the only lesson they're teaching us is the one you're saying that we must continue to fight and that the conditions that Doc was addressing almost 50 years ago continue to persist and in some ways have gotten worse.
0: Absolutely. And Jomo, I know that uh, the MXGM and the uh, Free Matulu Now campaign that you all have going on uh, uh, is, you know, calling for people to participate in an action for uh, Dr. Shakur's birthday coming up on the 8th. I believe you all are calling it 72 minutes for 72 years. So I was hoping you could tell us about that and where people can go if they want to find out more.
5: Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Doc turns uh, 72 on Monday, um, and we're so thankful and excited um, that uh, he is going to see another birthday and it resolves our our fight to to free him even more. And we're going to be holding an online um, celebration or commemoration of his birthday uh, and also a call to action starting at 720 Eastern Standard Time, 720 because of 72 years. And we're going to have a 72-minute program, uh, some music, speakers, friends, and family of Matulu sharing uh, greetings, giving folks updates on campaigns, and then asking folks to take action. Uh, We hope that our our effort is that he makes it to 73, and we know that that will only probably be possible if we free him now. So folks are invited uh, to join us, and you can uh, register for the event. It's uh, Biddle. B-I-T dot L-Y slash Matulu, B-Day Action, all lowercase. That'll take you to the Zoom link to register. Um, Folks are invited to come out and take action. Um, You can also go to our link tree um, slash free Matulu now that has access to the petition that we're asking folks to sign. We have over nearly 60,000 folks have signed the petition. Organizations and individuals can also endorse the campaign. We need fo- more folks. We're trying to build Shakur squads all over the country of folks helping um, to build the campaign to free Dr. Matula Shakur and all political prisoners are just some simple task. And then also we're asking folks to reach out to the congressional reps, right, that we really need to put pressure on the Bureau of Prisons, the Department of Justice to actually do what it says it's supposed to do, right? Matulu served his time. Matulu leads all the conditions for compassionate release. Um, And there's no reason that he's being denied that other than the nature, the political nature of his crime.
0: Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Jomo, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. we move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us.
2: By Any Means Necessary.
0: So by any means necessary, you on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Thursday, August 4th, 2022. And of course, in twenty minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us.
1: That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at by any means necessary here in Washington DC. You can do that at 320 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at SputnikNews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also hear us on Sputnik.Mave. That's M-A-V-E dot digital, And you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to four PM Eastern time each weekday, and we're streaming for your viewing pleasure live right now on Rumble. That's rumble.com slash C slash B A M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 320 P.M. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And uh,
0: at the top of the hour today, WNBA star Brittany Griner has been found guilty of drugs, possession and smuggling and was sentenced to nine years in prison in Russia earlier today. And we'll definitely be getting into that a little deeper tomorrow on the Red Spin report. Also at the top of the hour, four current and former Louisville police officers have been federally charged in the shooting death of Brianna Taylor. Now, this includes the Detectives who worked on the search warrant and the ex-officer who's accused of blindly firing into Brianna Taylor's home. Uh, this would mark the first federal counts that will be leveled against any of the officers that were involved in the botched raid that took place in March of 2020. According to Attorney General Merrick Garland, the four have been charged with unlawful conspiracies, unconstitutional use of force and obstructions. Namely, this is Joshua James, Kelly Goodlet, and Kyle Meany, who were charged with submitting a false affidavit to search Taylor's home that went out ahead of the raid. Then they worked together to create a quote false cover story in an attempt to escape responsibility for their roles in preparing the warrant affidavit that contained. False affirmation. They're also accused uh, after the shooting of conspiring to cover up that the warrant was in fact based on false information, along with making false statements in interviews with investigators. Uh, Also, today, um, it's officially been announced that the U.S. has declared monkeypox a health emergency. And this declaration uh, will uh, basically make emergency funds more available and get some bureaucratic obstacles out of the way so that things like vaccines and other treatments can go ahead and roll out to the public. But be that as it may, we're happy to be joined for the hour today by Ken Hammond, a professor of East Asian and global history at New Mexico State University and an activist with the organization Pivot to Peace. Dr. Hammond, thanks so much for joining us.
6: Hey, Sean, Jackie, glad to be here.
0: Absolutely. And doctor, of course, uh, there continues to be a, a lot of uh, uh, discussion and, and ripple effects, I think, following the trip of a U.S. Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, to Taiwan, despite uh, several warnings from the Chinese government. And even from the White House, though, at some point, I would like to talk about the role of the Biden administration in all of that. Uh, Following her landing, uh, not only did it trigger some strong condemnation from a number of uh, 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 Chinese officials, we also saw uh, some military exercises by the People's Liberation Army, including joint blockades, sea assaults, land attacks and air combat trainings uh, that also used a Advanced weapons, which include the J-20 stealth fighter jets and DF-17 hypersonic missiles. Now, really, before we even get into the whole issue with Pelosi, Dr. Hammond, I'd actually would like to get into some basic history and context around this issue, because I feel like like with so many other issues The American people lack even the basic information and understanding around uh, uh, these developments, which can definitely skew the way one views them. And so really, I would like to start with the history of Taiwan and its relationship to China in general, even going back to that level, because I feel like even that history can be directly connected to what we're seeing unfold right now in twenty twenty two
6: well i think that it's always good to to have that long perspective uh you know this uh, this situation with pelosi and taiwan and the current uh posturing and rhetoric by american politicians obviously this isn't something that just popped up overnight uh there's a there's a long uh, contemporary history that uh, that goes back to 1949 and a much deeper history than that in terms of you know, what is Taiwan? We know that it's an island. It's an island off the mainland of Asia. Uh, but uh, I think you're right. Most Americans, I'm sure, probably couldn't find it on a map, and certainly, I think, uh, don't have a sense of, of exactly what Taiwan is. We get a lot of uh, propaganda coming out of politicians in the media about how, you know, Taiwan is this independent place that the Chinese are trying to claim for themselves. And that's just a fundamental historical distortion. So, yeah, a little—I think—a little background is, is probably uh, good for people. So, you know, the island of Taiwan uh, is located about 80 miles off the off the coast of China, the rest of China, and it has been a part of China. It's a it's a Part of Chinese civilization, the people who live there, most of them are, are ethnically Han, ethnically Chinese from the mainland. Um, there are also uh, uh, indigenous people living on the island, people of Polynesian ancestry who have been around for a long time as well. But certainly, for at least the last oh seven eight hundred years, uh, the island has been politically integrated with with the mainland. Uh, it was. Uh, 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 You know, uh, uh, an important component of uh, of trade relations between China and the rest of East and Southeast Asia. Uh, Large numbers of of Chinese people have moved over there. It's right adjacent to uh, what's called Fujian province on the mainland. And a lot of people from Fujian have moved over there. Um, In the Ming Dynasty, which is 14th to 17th centuries, it was an integral part of Fujian province. And in the Qing Dynasty, the last of the imperial dynasties from the 17th century to the early 20th century, Taiwan was first a part of Fujian province. And then in the late 19th century, it became a province in its own right. So it has a long history of being part of the political Entity that uh, that we think of as uh, as China, you know, and that and that you know it, it's part of the Chinese uh, community. It's part of uh, it's occupied or you know, it, it's filled up with Chinese people. So uh, that's that's not something that is that is new or contentious or or a claim that somebody's making. That's just that's just the historical reality. Now, in 1895, Taiwan, the island, was taken by Japan after Japan had defeated China in, in a war, and uh, they forced the Chinese to cede the island of, of Taiwan to Japan, and it was part of the Japanese Empire for 50 years until 1945. But when Japan was defeated at the end of, uh, of World War II, uh, that territory reverted to Chinese sovereignty. And uh, and at first, the people on Taiwan were very happy about that. They they thought this was great. That was still 1945. Uh, the Republic of China, the Nationalist government, uh, was was running the country uh, at that point still. And so, you know, they they welcomed that. And and uh, Nationalist forces came across and began to to establish themselves on the island. But there was a lot of friction because the Nationalist uh, military and the Nationalist government, as we know from their experience on the mainland were were pretty corrupt often rather brutal and arbitrary and in 1947, after a couple of years, in, in, in uh, February of 1947, people on Taiwan rose up against the nationalists, saying that they they understood that the nationalists were planning, uh, you know, preparing to retreat there because they knew they were going to lose the civil war on the mainland. And they didn't want to be occupied by the nationalists. They didn't want to be part of that. They were hopeful for a more just and a more equitable and a less corrupt government. The nationalists put that rebellion down quite brutally at 10, twelve thousand people killed, twenty thousand or so in prison, they imposed martial law which they kept in place all the way down till nineteen eighty seven. So Taiwan became then this bastion for the for the losers in the in the revolutionary struggle in China. The nationalists withdrew there in 1948 1949 as the red army and the and the communist party led the revolution on the mainland. And then since then there's been this division that that uh, Taiwan is is in the hands of what calls itself the Republic of China. Uh, so still claiming to be China. And and in fact, if you buy a map of, of the Republic of China in Taipei, it shows the whole country, just as if you buy a map of the People's Republic of China in Beijing, it shows the whole country with Taiwan and the mainland as a single political entity. So that's, that's a very brief capsule of, of the history of it. But the, the present problems arise from the fact that this this issue of of the political status of Taiwan uh, is something that has been – it's been very clear, and, and this has been the position of, of the government on the mainland, uh, restated by President Xi Jinping recently, that this is a question coming down from history, which needs to be resolved by the Chinese people themselves. Everybody on both sides of the strait agrees that, that everybody there is Chinese. You know, and so those people, the Chinese people, the people who have sovereignty in China, need to be the ones who solve this problem without interference from the outside, but in their own way and in their own time. Nobody needs to be in a hurry about this. There's no reason to to upset the Apple cart as it were. It's a viable relationship. The vast majority of people on Taiwan say in in their own local opinion polls that they just want to go along with things as they are and maybe look towards some sort of eventual resolution. And that's I think the attitude of most people on the mainland as well. It's American politicians for their own political purposes, both for their their domestic, uh, you know, electoral propaganda and for trying to, you know, find a way to provoke China, find a way to try to trigger some conflict with China that would hurt the Chinese economy, hurt the Chinese people. It's the American politicians who have been ramping up this rhetoric, uh, you know, carrying out these provocations. Speaker Pelosi's visit is only the latest, uh, one of the most egregious, but only the latest of a long, long series of these provocations, violating the terms of the agreements that exist between the United States and China, under which the U.S. recognizes that there's only one China and Taiwan is part of it. So when Speaker Pelosi or other politicians talk about, oh, how China, you know, how Taiwan should be an independent entity, that's a violation of the legal obligations that the United States government has undertaken. So, you know, that's that's kind of a kind of a an overview of, of the situation. And we can talk about particular aspects of it more as you like.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great overview, particularly the part about the seven to eight hundred years that Taiwan has just been a part of China. It's not even I mean, it, historically, it's not even a question. But I do think when we look at the way that the government of Taiwan, that is that is Taiwan has uh, their own elected officials, uh, but they are a part of China. Don't you see, at least from my perspective, I think I see it this way, Dr. Hammond. And and tell me if I'm wrong, that the fact that Taiwan operates as it does to elect elect its own officials and go about its business the the way it chooses. and and, And China basically says, okay. Isn't that basically an example of the fact that China is a much more democratic entity than even the United States is in the way the U.S. sees this relationship between China and Taiwan?
6: Well, sure. I think that, uh, you know, uh, the the, the government in in Beijing. Has uh, for many years enunciated its perspective on on uh, the situation with Hong Kong, with Macau, with Taiwan, uh, of of what they call one country, two systems. You know, and and that they're comfortable with that. That you know, they understand that there are that that you know the situation comes down, as I say, from history. It's a situation that has uh, been in place now for a long time, and uh, you know, it, it it's it's sort of just. Muddling along, and and that's okay. Uh, that uh, that the idea that Taiwan is part of China doesn't mean that everything in Taiwan has to be exactly the same as everything on the mainland. You know, they're they're comfortable with the idea that the Taiwanese situation can have. You know, they they refer to the government there as the local authorities, and they accept that. They they see that as a legitimate thing. Uh, what they want is the recognition that that you know it's a subunit of this larger entity of China, uh, and I think yes, that 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 reflects the idea that 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 both on the mainland and in Taiwan, what's what's desired and and what is you know working is for the people. Uh, To exercise, you know, to have a government that that operates in their own interests, that that cares for those people uh, in their own way, within their own cultural and historical traditions, within their own, I suppose we could say, political culture. It doesn't have to mean that that everybody is uh, is, uh, operating in exactly identical conditions. Uh, things can be adapted, things can be modified, things can be, you know, developed that suit the particular conditions and circumstances of the people, whether that's on the mainland, in Hong Kong or or in, uh, in
0: Taiwan. Yeah, definitely. And bringing it back to uh, Pelosi, Dr. Hammond, I wanted to talk about. How this thing was packaged and advertised uh, to us here in the United States, uh, specifically in the way that, you know, there was some kind of tepid uh, uh, warning and pushback from the Biden administration. I mean, Joe Biden was saying that, you know, the 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 military doesn't think it's a good idea, so on and so forth. So the image that we all got is that, you know, Nancy Pelosi uh, basically went rogue and did this all on her own. But. I mean, her making this trip, I feel like, would have literally been impossible if she did not have the express blessing of the Biden administration. I feel like had she been told explicitly, you cannot and will not go on this trip for X, Y, Z reasons, then she would not have uh, went. And she also, you know, promotes this idea that it was, a, you know, a congressional delegation and, and all those sorts of things. And so what it seems to me, uh, uh, Dr. Hammond, is that really the Biden administration uh, is trying to play a kind of political sleight of hand and try to create a basically a fake bit of distance between the administration and Pelosi, the individual. But in the reality, like I say, it just seems like uh, uh, the trip itself would not have been possible uh, uh, if uh, the Biden administration didn't give that permission. You know what I mean?
6: Absolutely. I mean, Pelosi flew into uh, Taiwan on a military, American military aircraft, an American military aircraft that would not have been provided to her, uh, you know, if, if, if in fact the government the the administration uh chose not to do so uh you know i think that um <laughs> On the one hand, I, I think that uh, that uh, the Biden administration may have sought to create a little, uh, you know, they, they used to talk about what they called strategic ambiguity. I think they may have tried to introduce a little bit of that uh, into this situation, or or some sort of almost plausible deniability, so that had things not gone so well, you know, they could have said, well, you know, we said this wasn't such a good idea. But the reality is exactly as you say that Pelosi would not have gone, could not have gone without the approval of uh, the president of the state department of the pentagon this is not you know it's not the speaker of the house going rogue for heaven's sake this person is the third person in succession to the presidency you know she's a member of the democratic party she's the leader of the democratic party in the in the house of representatives uh, you know that's the party in power that's the that's the party that holds the white house now so the idea that this was just sort of a uh, you know, oh, she had this whim, and she went off and just sort of did this on her own. She went on military aircraft, she talked about it. It was presented as a congressional delegation. She took other members of Congress, although mostly Republicans, with her. But hostility to China is one of the few truly bipartisan things amongst bourgeois politicians. you know this, the idea that 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 there's anything other than this is anything other than an official act of the American government uh, that just doesn't hold water.
0: Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour. On that note, here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C., we'll be right back. So please stay with
2: us. By Any Means Necessary.
0: So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie LucMon. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines now open 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lupman continue to be joined by Dr. Ken Hammond. And Dr. Hammond, there's another aspect of this that I wanted to touch on, and that's specifically the protests that were aimed uh, at Nancy Pelosi's uh, a trip to Taiwan. I know we had uh, some here in the United States and places like San Francisco, but there were also protests In Taiwan Mm -hmm. against Pelosi's trip that were completely ignored by the mainstream media. I'm looking at a photo right now in a piece uh, by the Global Times, which is a Chinese media platform. And there's a photo and there are these two signs that say uh, American witch get out of Taiwan, China get out troublemaker Nancy Pelosi. And the reason that this is, you know, noteworthy to me, Dr. Hammond, is that it it reminds me of the dynamic with the U.S. government and Ukraine, just like how the United States claims to have so much love and concern for the Ukrainian people and they're going to help them in their fight against the the bad man uh, in Moscow. When in truth, we know that that is a proxy war that the U.S. wants to rage Uh, With Russia over, uh, uh, of course, you know, uh, basically controlling and encirclement and containment of Russia, which has been a project of U.S. imperialism for some time. And so they claim to care about the Ukrainian people, and yet they're funneling all this uh, money and weapons and resources that will only extend the war and thereby deepen their suffering, where it's a similar thing here. Supposedly, you know, uh, Pelosi went on this, what she's promoting as a heroic, uh, Uh, sort of act, you know, to uh, stand in solidarity with you know, a democracy in Taiwan or whatever against the quote unquote, you know, authoritarian Chinese government and what have you. But it seems to me that this U.S. government cares about as much for the people of of Taiwan as it does for the people of Ukraine, which is to say, not at all. So to me, it just feels like this very transparent lie frankly, about um, the U.S. and its supposed concern for democracy and uh, uh, you know, uh, the integrity of borders and sovereignty and, and all these sorts of things, and in truth just use that um, as an excuse you know, to carry through their own designs.
6: Yeah, I think that uh, there's, a, there's a certain equivalence between uh, the situation of Taiwan and the situation of Ukraine and, and many other uh, particular circumstances uh, around the planet in that uh, you know, the United States views... Other other countries, other peoples, uh, not for themselves, not for their needs, for their interests, for their, you know, what's going to be best for them, but for how they can be utilized to advance American interests and so you know they they look at taiwan without really contemplating what the what the consequences of certain outcomes might be for the people on the island for the people of taiwan uh or for people in china itself ordinary people in china itself uh and and instead you know they view taiwan as a sort of pawn on the chessboard that that they can manipulate they can move around and deploy in various ways to try to advance their game try to advance their interests and uh, uh, you know sometimes people talk about uh, uh they use this term about a proxy war and and you know the, the Americans are great at that the Americans are happy to to have proxy wars uh and and you know if if something were to go down that would involve actual military conflict uh across the strait uh, you know the damage that would be done from the American perspective, what the Americans think about this is that would just, you know, that would affect the people over there. It doesn't affect us back here, just as in Ukraine. You know, we have this war going on in Ukraine. The United States and and its NATO minions, you know, are pouring in weapons and other supplies and, and money to, to just enough to keep that war going, because the real objective isn't the situation of the people of Ukraine—it's—it's it's to damage Russia. It's to try to to bring Russia down, to cut Russia down, to to roll back Russia's influence in in uh, in Europe, in the world. Uh, you know, the target is Russia, and the Ukrainian people are just a, a convenient instrument uh, to advance those American interests. Well, they would like to see the same thing happen with Taiwan. The the presence of of protesters. Which, as you say, was was almost entirely ignored. I, I was struck by one article I saw in The New York Times that included one, not even a whole sentence, but a, a, a phrase in a sentence that said that as Pelosi you know, moved around uh, to various venues, uh, she was followed by reporters. And groups of protesters, you know, that was the only mention I saw of it in the mainstream media. But there were protesters everywhere she went saying, you know, don't endanger us, don't act recklessly, get the hell out. And I think that that's, that's something that, that is, is very important to understand. You know, this wasn't some triumphalist victory lap that uh, that Nancy Pelosi and, and her Republican chums got to got to take in Taiwan. This was a contentious thing there. As I mentioned earlier, the vast majority, like 82% of people in recent polls in Taiwan, say that they don't want to change the status quo. They don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to declare independence. They're not also ready to, to go for a full 100% merger with things on the mainland. But they want the situation to continue to go forward towards an eventual resolution that will be brought about by the Chinese people themselves. And they see many people there see these manipulations by the Americans as dangerous to themselves. And I think a lot of people understand. Understand that That's because the United States government, the American elites, they don't care, as you say, about the people of Taiwan. What they care about is advancing the interests of the American capitalist class, advancing the interests of corporations and their profits, uh, you know, regardless of how, you know, what the eventual impact of that is going to be on ordinary people.
0: Definitely. And, you know, my next question, Dr. Hammond, is... You know, it, 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 it's a bit broad and maybe difficult to answer, but why? Like, why do this? I mean, it, the Biden administration knew very well that there would be a strong response to Pelosi's visit. I mean, there was a strong response before she even got on the plane. I mean, certainly we know uh, that we're operating in this new Cold War uh, uh, moment with uh, Washington doing everything it can to stop uh, the peaceful rise of China as the ascendant world power and hasn't yet been able to find anything that's really going to uh, uh, do that. But I don't see how uh, Pelosi making this trip is going to help things either. So, I mean, we I mean, what what do we see? And I know we're not in these people's heads, and no, nor what I want to be. But like, I just what was even the benefit or the strategy that uh, we think is even behind uh, Pelosi going to Taiwan? Like, like, what were they even trying to gain? You know? Yeah, I, I think that there's probably you know
6: at least a few different levels of of what's going on here of, of motivation. In this. I mean, on, on on the most macro level, it's it's just one more ploy in this, this, you know, wide-ranging offensive, uh, this aggressive posture that America has adopted towards China, uh, whether it's provocations in the South China Sea or the Taiwan Strait or, you know, the, the clandestine funding of anti-government rioting in, in Hong Kong or the, the, the campaigns of vilification and demonization in the media about, you know, Xinjiang or Tibet or whatever, you know, Uh, These are this is a it's a it's a full court press trying to demonize China, trying to make the American people afraid of China, anxious about the relationship with China, trying to isolate China, to contain China um, in the hopes that China's China's development, the the enhancement of the lives of the Chinese people, which has been going on for the last 70 years, can somehow be maybe slowed down or, or even. Perhaps uh, derailed uh, in order to protect, to perpetuate the power and the privileges of American elites, you know, of, of the American capitalist class and its and its you know its Western allies, um, because they see their position in the world eroding. They see China's rise in this kind of zero sum mentality that says you know well if if china becomes more prosperous and 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 china has more uh, prestige and and perhaps uh, respect in the world that can only be a, a loss for us you know and they fear the loss of their power their privileges the things that they've enjoyed for for many decades you know and and sadly that's that's kind of an irreversible trend that's not something that's going to be changed by these kinds of posturings and and these actions uh, but but that's that's I think that's that's the biggest underlying factor behind all this, but I think there's other elements involved as well. Some of which, you know, I think hey, Nancy Pelosi is 83 years old. She's at the end of a long political career. She has a long, long track record as a kind of virulent anti-communist, uh, someone who has, you know, sort of staked out her legacy as, as you know, this fighter for what she calls democracy and freedom, which is really just, you know, capitalist self-interest. But I think this may, she may have thought of this as a kind of capstone to her career, you know, and that uh, she, she you know, some grandiose gesture that she's making to just show what a wonderful fighter she is, you know. So there may be some psychological uh, elements involved in this in terms of her, her individual motivation. But I think the scariest part uh, is, is that there are certainly elements within the American elite, within the American political class, who actually want to flirt with open conflict with China, who think that somehow triggering a military clash between the PLA and the and the forces on, on on the island of Taiwan would be a good thing that that would that would damage China it would uh, you know it would it would contribute to their overarching goal of, of hurting China slowing its growth, slowing its development as if that could somehow be contained into some manageable little little exchange you know some, I don't know, a clash of missiles or something like that, uh, you know, which of course would be devastating for the Taiwanese people. It would be devastating for people on the mainland. It would disrupt the global economy in in very profound ways, and I doubt that it could be contained to just you know a, a minor local skirmish, and the dangers of that escalating all the way up to potential nuclear war i think are are massive and 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 just discounted in in the in the mainstream of, of public rhetoric about this stuff so i think that there's multiple factors at play in this um, and and some of which are are extremely dangerous i think it's been interesting um, that that the follow up to this you know pelosi left taiwan and went to south korea where the president and the and the speaker there refused to meet, or the foreign minister, rather, refused to meet with her. They, they had scheduling problems, and they, they couldn't meet with her. And I think South Korea is one of America's closest minions in, in East Asia. And this new president there is a pretty conservative figure. The idea that he was freaked out by her behavior, that he sees her as a menace, that he's not willing to meet with her, I think that's a very clear indicator of just how reckless and provocative her journey has
0: been. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like you say, when Yoon suk uh, uh, you know, uh, gets cold feet, then something's, something has gone wrong. But we've got a caller on the line here. Kier, tell us what's on your mind.
4: Hello, good afternoon, everybody. Um, I just had a quick question. Um, I kind of think about World War II and then after it was coming to an end and then people were questioning um, the German population and they were, claiming, and they were claiming
5: ignorance about what the Nazis were doing. And then I kind of think of the same thing about um, the
4: U.S. and its citizens, including myself. And then I know how um, the U.S. is having its propaganda and whatnot. But as it continues to just bully the world and we do these things, how long can us normal citizens claim ignorance or uh, just claim a sense of it wasn't us while well, our country just always thinks of other people? And the world kind of looks at, looks at us before it starts to, I don't know, just look down on us. If that question makes sense. Thanks for the talk. Have a good day. Well, thank
0: you, Pierre. Appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, Dr. Hammond, your thoughts?
6: Well, I think I think Pierre raises a really important question. Um, but I think it's one that that uh, certainly certainly we're trying to address here, and and you know your program and other things like this. You know, as as citizens. Uh, obviously, uh, the American people have obligations and, and responsibilities to inform themselves as best they can about the what's going on in our country and the world around us, and to try to hold our our governmental uh, officials, uh, you know, responsible for conducting themselves in a in a in a in a, in a responsible way, you know, uh, and and that that is a big challenge. And the idea somehow that that we can persist with this kind of Public political posture of, of willful uh, willful uh, uh, amnesia, you know, ignoring or, or pretending that things in the past didn't happen, or not wanting to look at at the problematic aspects of things. You know, I, I guarantee that the vast majority of people in the United States have no idea that Taiwan was held under martial law for forty years. You know, Nancy Pelosi wrote a, a, an op-ed piece that ran in the Washington Post the day she arrived in Taiwan. And she opens that by talking about the Taiwan Relations Act that was passed in 1979 as a gesture of solidarity with the, the, the vibrant democracy of Taiwan. But in 1979, Taiwan was under martial law. There were no legal political parties other than the Kuomintang, which had dominated the government there since they took the island over in 1947 and 48. So there was no democracy there. There was no democracy that she was defending. She doesn't care about the democracy of Taiwan. She cares about Taiwan as a pawn, as we said earlier, in this, in this geopolitical uh, uh, you know, machinations of, of the American government. Most Americans have no idea of that because that's not what we're taught. That's not what we're told. So I guess all I can say in terms of, of Pierre's question is, yes, the American people need to be responsible uh, for, for you know what's going on in the past. They need to hold their leaders responsible for that. And And the biggest challenge to that and the biggest task that we all have is to inform ourselves, to learn, to study, to investigate, to go beyond – you know, the headlines and, and the mainstream media and, and you know, the, the nonsense that gets put in high school textbooks and really dig into the facts. You know, the Chinese talk about seeking truth from facts. And that's what we have to do. We can't rely upon the bourgeois propaganda and, and, the, and the, the corporate media to tell us anything uh, that we can really rely upon. We have to investigate and learn for ourselves. Jackie Lukman.
1: Yeah, you know, I can't help but think about the fact that the Washington Post published that op-ed that was just full of complete lies about the actual history of Taiwan and I think this is part of the reason that the American populace is so woefully uh, un- uneducated is not the right word propagandized deeply indoctrinated into these lies it's because not only are we not taught these things in public school we're all we also don't have a media that is actually independent and is responsible for reporting, The truth, as you often say, Sean, the media in this country are quite literally the corporate media are quite literally the scribes for the State Department. They are the reporters for the empire. So we have this kind of full spectrum uh, control of the psyche of of American, of the American population. We're taught lies in public school. We're indoctrinated with this American exceptionalism. Through through Hollywood and television, the news that we watch that's supposed to educate us on what is really going on in the world, just lies, repeats the lies of the empire. And then those independent outlets that do uh, do that real work of journalism and tell the truth about the history and, and all of these things and what the empire really is doing and the proxy wars and all of that. We get silenced. We get discredited. You know, we get raided by the FBI and then labeled foreign agents. So when you look at it from that kind of holistic way that that information is uh, weaponized in this country, it's not hard to see why people in this country do not know what we know. Because honestly, Sean, we only know what we know because we came in contact with someone who had a good piece of political education and we were curious enough to stick around.
0: Yeah, we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us.
2: By Any Means Necessary.
0: Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lufman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open 202 521 1320. That's 2. Zero two five two one one three two zero. I am here. Jackie Lukman is here. Dr. Ken Hammond is here. And uh, before we get back into it, I wanted to respond to um, our caller. Stop me if you've heard this one. The people of the United States are the most propagandized people on planet Earth. Right. And I know, you know, I say this every seven minutes, it seems like. Right. So I know I'm probably sound like a broken record, but it's true. And of course, we know that the dominant ideas of any society are that of its ruling class. So every single solitary institution of knowledge production in this capitalist country is uh, squarely focused in justifying the existence of that same imperialist system. It's true for school. It's true for the corporate owned media. It's true for popular media. It's true for social media, all of that, right? And so we're talking about an incessant, nonstop, literally 24-7, 365 assault on the consciousness of the people of this country. And this is exactly why we talk about the importance of political education so much on this show, because undoing that conditioning, this indoctrination that we think is information in education is some of the most difficult work we can do. But because we're in a time where this capitalist system is in decline, This imperialist system that uh, arises out of that capitalist system is in decline. People in this country are seeing their conditions worsen because of the contradiction of that system. So as organizers, as popular educators... We have to be able to articulate this and make the connection between our conditions at home and what happens abroad and point the finger directly at who is responsible, which is, of course, this ruling class. You see what I mean? Now, this process, it isn't always fun. It isn't always easy, but that's why we call it struggle. And on that note, uh, Dr. Hammond, I was thinking over the break about how, while Nancy Pelosi was engaged in this foolhardy, bullheaded, uh, ridiculous uh, stunt, and I don't know what else we can call it, but a stunt, While she was doing that, she could have been right here. She could have been in the United States. She could have been pushing legislation to actually do something about the inflation crisis, except for, you know, have like 5% unemployment for several years. You know, they could uh, uh, codify abortion rights, protect workers, actually fight climate change instead of this little uh, 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 piddly stuff painting around the corners that the Biden administration wants to do. There are so many things. That Nancy Pelosi and really the Democrats in general could have been doing instead of this. And those things would have been an incredible positive benefit to the masses of poor, working, and oppressed people right here in this country. But clearly, we are not the priority of this country. Our livelihoods are not the priority of this country. The U.S is obviously still squarely concerned, first and foremost, about maintaining its hegemonic control over the earth. And in doing so, I think threatens humanity itself. And I don't think that's an overstatement because the implications of war with China, just like the implications of war with Russia, could be catastrophic if it were to take place. And so, Doctor, as we often point out here on the show, since it's clear that the Democrats and the Republicans, these two wings of the ruling class, since it's clear that they aren't interested in fighting for our interests, then it's incumbent upon us to organize to carry out that fight.
6: Absolutely. Absolutely. No, you know, there's certainly no shortage of (laughs) issues and concerns that, that are, are getting more and more challenging for the American people. Working people in this country face inflation, face a failed health care system, face, you know, uh, the, the, the erosion of our, of our, you know, environmental viability. You know, climate change, uh, global warming, these, these storms, these heat waves, you know, th- these are existential challenges for ordinary people, these are these are things that, that are going to affect our lives constantly from now on. Uh, you know, they already have been, and they're going to continue to going into the future. And and our our governmental uh, leaders seem uh, incapable, uh, and and I think we understand unwilling. To address these in any meaningful kind of way, uh, in a way that would that would challenge the fundamental structures that generate these problems, you know, when just just thinking about something as fundamental as as healthcare, you know. China has uh you know China gets bashed in the papers every day for for its zero covid policy as if you know the zero covid policy is some terrible thing that that uh, you know an oppressive state is imposing upon its its beleaguered people but you know China's China's response to to the the pandemic has been one that says the lives of the people are the most important thing. We will do whatever we have to do to save lives, to preserve human lives. And as a result of that, China still has had fewer than 5,500 deaths from COVID. The United States is, what, at 1.1 million now in a population that's a quarter the size of China. If China had followed policies like ours, they'd have over 4 million deaths instead of 5,500, fewer than 5,500. So, you know, here profits come first. The profitability of corporations, and especially in this Context: the profitability of hospital corporations, insurance companies, pharmaceutical corporations. This is the priority, and and you can just see in this in this bashing of China about the zero COVID policy that that they can't even imagine how a country, how a people could decide to forego profitability, to take the economic hit. And there's no question that this policy has imposed economic costs. On China, that its its GDP is lower than they had hoped for. Uh, you know, it has it has caused uh, uh, you know uh, hardship for, for many people in terms of, of income and and the availability of, of goods. It's disrupted supply chains. There's no question that there have been economic costs, but they have chosen to pursue these policies to save people's lives and that just seems incomprehensible to american elites the bourgeois here you know all they can think of is that quarterly statement is you know what's the return on investment how are my how are my stocks doing you know that's what matters profitability is the number one god worshiped by the american elites and so that's true i mean healthcare is is perhaps the most blatant example of that right now but it's true right across the board their unwillingness they you know They would have to change the capitalist system. They would have to really, we understand, do away with the capitalist system to solve these problems. And that's obviously something that they're unwilling to even contemplate uh, or consider.
1: Yeah, you know, and what you were just talking about, uh, the success uh, that China has had with uh, battling COVID, interestingly enough, I think in Nancy Pelosi's little op ed, her little imperialist uh, warmongering op ed, she credited Taiwan with success in battling COVID as if it was separate from China's. I, it, you know, the COVID policy that has been so incredibly successful in China since the pandemic arose, she she ascribed it simply to Taiwan without giving China any credit for anything that they have done for all of those people. And I think that, you know, the idea that you pointed to before, uh, Professor Hammond, that, you know, the United States their goal is to like to contain China, to to, you know, relegate them to this corner that they can control them in the world. And and, uh, you know, that kind of thing, uh, uh, um, uh, limit their economic impact and their uh, influence around the world. I think when you are a nation that has been able to raise 800 million people out of poverty, when you can do that in 40 years. I don't think any any force on the planet can actually stop you from doing anything else, because clearly you have already won the will of the people. You have This This is why I think China remains such a successful revolution, because the people in China are clear about what their government has done for them and continues to do for them. China has this uh, shared prosperity program that they are embarking on to increase uh, the prosperity of people to build on, you know, lifting so many people out of abject poverty. And, and I mean, we live in a country, Professor Hammond, where we didn't even get all of our stimulus money. You feel me? <laughs> I mean, we're still waiting for the rest of that $2,000 that we were supposed to get from this government for for the COVID stimulus money. And China is embarking on building on raising people, hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, eliminating abject rural poverty, and and this country is trying to contain China, I think that's impossible because of the success of what they've done within China. But I think it's also impossible, Dr. Hammond, because of the success that China has had in sharing its prosperity with other nations in the world.
6: Oh, I think that's a really critical, a really critical point. You know, it's not just—I mean, the, you, you know—we we've talked about healthcare, we've talked about the poverty eradication programs. It's also, you know, things like housing, things like just improving the overall material standards of living, educational opportunity. You know, the conditions of uh, of, of older people, retirement, things like this. You know, China's—it's not; they haven't solved all their problems. They still have significant challenges. But the, what they have accomplished is, is just so phenomenal. And, you know, Chinese people, as you say, they understand this. They get this. This isn't some big mystery over there. They can see very, very clearly how their lives have changed, how their lives have improved. You know, there are challenges. There are problems that they face. There's contradictions that uh, that still need to be addressed. They're working very hard on on things like, Climate change and and uh, and and warming over there, uh, and and there's a long way to go. I don't I don't want to paint a picture that you know China has somehow achieved the the, the socialist utopia. Uh, it's still very much a work in progress, and 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 there's a lot of hard hard work to be done. But but that work is being done. They see what the problems are. They see where they need to go. They see especially what they have accomplished and what they can continue to accomplish. You know. Even Western polls, polls from Harvard University, from the Pew Foundation, they go into China, they ask people about things. The vast majority of people, something like eighty six percent of people in China, will say that they support the policies, not just not just the existence of their government, but the policies that their government is pursuing. Any American politician, and especially our current president, would, you know, would would Fall down on the ground and and weep if they got that kind of endorsement, if they had that level of support. You know, people in China know what has happened. They know what's good. They know where they want to go. And they know that they have a government that is trying to address and implement their interests. You know, so that's a huge difference. And that carries over into China's relationship with other developing societies, the developing economies around the world. You know, we don't have time to go into all the details of the Belt and Road and all that. But China is its not imposing political standards on the world. It's not saying, we'll give you aid if you do what we tell you to do politically, if you organize your country the way we want you to. But they provide a a, a model, uh, 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 an example. People around the world can look at China and say, Whoa! Look at what they have accomplished. Look at what the lives of the Chinese people are like today, as opposed to 50 years ago, 70 years ago, 100 years ago, and the, the the change is just stunning. It's 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 unprecedented in human history. That's not something people can't see, and it's not something that people, you know, want to ignore. That's something they want to learn from, emulate those parts that apply to them find new ways to, to innovate on their own. It's only in the United States, maybe in Western European countries, where, as you were talking about before, we're just you know, besieged by this relentless propaganda, miseducation, misinformation, lies, distortions, demonization about China. Here, this, this is one of the few places in the world where people don't understand that history and what the present realities are.
0: Yeah, definitely. And that that the reality that you just laid out there, Dr. Hammond, is something that a lot of Americans uh, simply don't grasp because of the very indoctrination that we've been thinking about, because there's been so much effort, not just recently, but over years and years and years um, that have sought to demonize China and to paint it as the worst place on Earth. And if you point out anything to the contrary, well, then you're accused of, you know, like worshiping at the altar of Jesus. Jinping and trying to make uh, uh, China seem like like it's heaven on Earth. When in reality, you're just pointing out the things that have uh, actually happened, because obviously any country under any system is going to grapple with certain issues. The question is, how is that system working to address these contradictions? And it's actually connected to uh, a question I saw in the chat that I wanted to address um, talking about uh, 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 the ruling class. And doesn't every society uh, have a ruling class? This is important to note because without question, yeah, every society under any system has a ruling class. But what is their class character? This is what makes all the difference. So in the United States, this is a capitalist country. So when I talk about all those institutions of knowledge production at every level, they are tailor made to justify the existence of the class dynamics. In the United States, under the capitalist system, which ultimately is in place to protect that wealthy minority, this capitalist ruling class that hoards the wealth that is wrought from our labor. But when you look at countries with a socialist system like China, Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, the DPRK, and so on and so forth, you're talking about a completely different dynamic and a completely different way of thinking and a completely different way of defining and practicing democracy that puts People in the center in terms of the priority of the society. This is what Dr. Hammond was speaking to when he talked about the zero COVID policy. China knew they would take a serious economic hit by uh, enacting zero COVID, but they knew that the health and wellness and lives of their people were much more important than any other economic hit. And that's why they only have a few thousand deaths from COVID, and the United States has over a million. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One want to thank Dr. Ken Hammond so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace.
2: By Any Means Necessary.